2. Tyon, and we may pause here to notice that no homemaking course in normal school or college can be sufficient to give the teacher true knowledge of ideal homes. She must have seen such homes, or those which approximate the ideal. Perhaps she has grown up in such a home. More probably she has not. If not, it must then necessarily follow that the lower have been the ideals in the home where the teacher had her training. The more she should see of other homes, and especially of good homes, her whole outlook may be changed by such contact, and with her outlook, her teaching, and with her teaching, her influence. If all girls grew up in ideal homes, it seems probable that homemaking would appeal to them quite naturally as the ultimate vocation. Indeed, we know that many girls feel this natural drawing. In spite of most unlovely conditions in their childhood homes, the task of mother, teacher, and vocational counselor who may be either in this matter is a complicated one. Some girls are not fitted by nature to be homemakers. Some may with careful training overcome inherent defects which stand in the way of their success. Some had the natural endowment, but had their eyes fixed on other careers. Some had unhappy ideals to overcome. The fact, however, confronts us that at some time in their lives a very large majority of these girls will be homemakers. It is the part of those who had charge of them in their formative years to do two things for them. First, to train them so that they may understand the tasks of the homemaker and perform them credibly if they are called upon. Second, to teach all those girls who seem fitted for this high vocation to desire it, and to choose it for at least part of their mature lives. Chapter III Establishing a home Certain very definite attempts are being made in these days to meet the evident lack of homemaking knowledge in the rising generation, and since definiteness of plan lends power to accomplishment, we cannot do better than to analyze as carefully as possible the various lines of knowledge required by the prospective homemaker in entering upon her life work. What are the problems of homemaking, and how far can we provide the girl with the necessary equipment to make her an efficient worker in her chosen vocation? Country life and city life are apparently so far removed from each other as to present totally different problems to the homemaker and to the vocational educator of girls, and yet underlying the successful management of both urban and rural homes are the same principles of domestic economy and of social efficiency. The principles are there. However widely their application may differ, while we may wisely train country girls for country living, and city girls to face the problems of urban life, we must not lose sight of the fact that country girls often become homemakers in the city and that city girls are often found establishing homes in the country, nor should we overlook the truth that some study of home conditions in other than familiar surroundings will broaden the girl's knowledge and fit her in later life to make conditions subservient to that knowledge. Both rural and urban homemakers must be taught to appreciate their advantages and to make the most of them. They must also learn to face their disadvantages and to work intelligently toward overcoming them. The country homemaker has no immediate need of studying the problems of congestion in population which menace the millions of city dwellers. The country home has plenty of room and an abundance of pure air. Yet it is often true that country homes are poorly ventilated and that much avoidable sickness results from this fact. The country home is often set in the midst of great natural beauty, yet misses its opportunity to satisfy the eye in an artistic sense. Its very isolation is sometimes a cause of the lack of attention to its appearance to the passerby. The farmer's wife has an advantage in the matter of fresh vegetables, eggs, and poultry, but the city housekeeper has the nearby market and finds the question of sanitation, the preservation of food, and the disposal of waste far easier of solution. The city housewife is often troubled in regard to the source of her milk supply, 
The country dweller has plenty of fresh milk, but frequently finds it difficult to be sure of pure water. The country homemaker often lacks the conveniences which make housekeeping easier. The city woman is often misled by the ease of obtaining the ready-made article into buying inferior products in order to avoid the labor of producing. The family in the farming community often has meager social life and lack of proper recreations. The city dweller is made restless and improvident by an excessive opportunities for certain sorts of amusement. Thus each type of community has its own problems. But practically all of these problems fall under certain general heads which both city and country homemakers should consider as part of their education. The present turning of thought toward training in these directions is most promising for the homes of the future. Illustration, photograph by Brown Bros. A country home which, though set in the midst of natural beauty, yet fails to satisfy the eye in an artistic sense illustration, courtesy of Mrs. Joseph Ewing in contrast to the illustration above. This home shows what a few artistic touches may do to enhance the natural beauty of the surroundings. It is one of the misfortunes of existing conditions that the city and the country are not better acquainted with each other. Scorn frequently takes the place of understanding. The town or village girl goes out to teach in the country school. Knowing little of country living and less of country homes, it is difficult, if not impossible, for such a teacher to be an influence for good especially as she approaches the homemaking problem is she without the knowledge which must underlie successful work. It is important that the city girl under such conditions should make a special effort to study country life and country homes in a sympathetic, helpful spirit. Perhaps our analysis of homemaking problems can take no more practical form than to follow from its hypothetical beginning the making of an actual home. No more inspiring moment comes in the lives of most men and women than that in which the first step is taken toward making their first home. There is an instinctive recognition of the greatness of the occasion, but ignorance will dull the glow of inspiration and wrong standards will lead to a wreck of highest hopes. Let us, therefore, be practical and definite and face the facts. A home is to be established. The first question is, where? To a certain extent circumstances must answer this question the character and place of employment of the breadwinner, the income, social relations already established, school, church, library, market, water and sanitary conditions, must all be considered, yet even these regulating conditions must receive intelligent treatment. How many young homemakers have any definite idea as to what proportion of the income may safely be expended for shelter? How many can tell the relative advantages of renting and owning? Illustration Copyright by Keystone View Company, a tenement district. One of the greatest disadvantages in urban life is the overcrowding in tenement houses. Probably the first consideration in selection is likely to be whether the home is to be permanent or merely temporary. When the occupation is likely to be permanent, the greatest comfort and well-being will usually result from establishing early a permanent home, and this involves a long look ahead to justify the selection of a site. Not only must health and convenience be considered, but future questions relative to the expanding requirements of the homemakers and to the education and proper upbringing of a family as well. Then, too, young people must usually begin modestly from a financial standpoint, and they are therefore cut off from certain locations which they may perhaps desire and which they might hope to attain in later years. In the country, where the livelihood is often gained directly from the land, a new element enters into selection and must to some extent take precedence over others. Soil considerations aside, however, we have health, beauty, social environment, educational advantages, and expense to consider, 
and we should establish certain standards in these directions for our young people to measure by. Considerations of health must include not only climatic conditions, but questions of drainage, water supply, time and comfort of transportation to a work, and the sanitary condition of the neighborhood. Prospective homemakers must learn, too, the value of reposeful surroundings and of some degree of natural beauty. They must recognize the value also of desirable social environment that island of such moral and intellectual surroundings as will be uplifting for the homemakers and safe for the future family. They will, it is hoped, learn that a merely fashionable neighborhood is not necessarily a desirable environment. The church, the school, the library, and proper recreation centers are also to be considered in one's social outlook. They are all distinctly worth paying for, as also is a good road. With the site selected, the great problem of building next confronts the homemaker. Here again the principles of selection should be sufficiently known to a young people, boys and girls alike, to save them from the mistakes so commonly made and frequently so regretted. The people who can afford to employ an architect to design their homes are in a decided minority, and the only way to ensure good houses for the less well-to-do majority is to see that the less well-to-do do not grow up without instruction as to what good houses are. The great tendency of the day in building is fortunately toward increased simplicity and toward equality which we may call, livableness. This tendency we shall do well to fix in our teaching. In general, the good house is plain, substantial, convenient, and sweet to its surroundings. Efficient housekeeping is largely conditioned by such very practical details as closets and pantries, the relative positions of sink and stove, the height of work tables and shelves, the distance from range to dining table the ease or difficulty of cleaning woodwork, laundry facilities, and the like. Housekeeping is made up of accumulated details of work, and adequate preparation for comfort in working can be made only when the house is in process of construction. Not less are the higher and more abstract duties of the homemaker served by the kind of house she lives and works in. In a hundred details the homemaker should be able to increase the efficiency of the place to make citizens in. A common mistake in building produce is a house which adds to rather than lessens, the burdens of its inmates. More often than not this is the result of a misapprehension of what houses are for. There are many large mansions in our villages and cities built for show and display of wealth in which no one will live today. These houses are being torn down and sold for junk. The modern home is built for one purpose only, a home. We must therefore teach our boys and girls that houses are for shelter, work, comfort, and rest, and to satisfy our sense of beauty not to serve as show places nor to establish for us a standing in the community proportionate to the size of our buildings. We must teach them to measure their house needs and to avoid the uselessly ornate as well as the hopelessly ugly. We must teach them to consider ease of upkeep a distinctly valuable factor in building. But most of all must the homemaker be taught that the comfort and well-being of the family come first in the making of plans. Few persons possess sufficient originality to think out new and valuable arrangements for houses, therefore we must see that their minds are rendered alert to discover successful arrangements in the houses they are constantly seeing and to adapt these arrangements to their own needs, unless their minds are awakened in this direction. The majority will merely see the house problem in large units, overlooking the finer points of detail which mean comfort or the opposite. I recall spending a considerable number of drawing periods in my grammar school days upon copying drawings of houses. I recall that we became sufficiently conversant with such terms as front elevation, side elevation, and floor plan to feel that we were deep in technical knowledge. 
but I do not recall that anyone suggested any question as to the suitability of these houses for homes, or opened our minds to consideration of the fact that house building was a proper concern for our minds. It was merely a case in which educative processes failed to function. They do things better now in many schools, but we should not rest until all of our prospective homemakers have opportunity to obtain practical instruction in home planning and building. Matters pertaining to heating, ventilating, and plumbing are easily taught as resting upon certain definite, well-understood principles. Here the personal element is less to be considered, and scientific knowledge may be passed on with some degree of authority. Our courses in physics, chemistry, and hygiene can be made thoroughly practical without losing any of their scientific value, especially in our rural schools should matters of this sort receive careful and adequate treatment. In times past it was considered inevitable that the country dwellers should lack the advantages, found in most city houses, of a plentiful supply of water, radiated heat for the whole house, proper disposal of waste, and arrangements for cold storage. We know now that these things are obtainable at less cost than we had supposed, and we know also that it is not lack of means, but lack of knowledge, which forces many to do without them. In many a farm home the doctor's bills for one or two winters would pay for installing proper systems of heat and ventilation. Everything that tends to increase the comfort and safety of home life must be taught, as well as everything that tends to lessen the labor of keeping a family clean, warm, and properly fed. Accurate figures should be obtained to set before the boys and girls who will be homemakers, showing the cost, in time, labor, and money of running a heating plant for the house as compared with several stoves scattered about in the dwelling. To accompany these we must have more figures, showing the comparative time spent in doing the necessary work incidental to the operation of each type of apparatus. We must consider the comparative cleanliness of both types of heating plants, with their effect, first, upon the health of the family, and secondly, upon the amount of cleaning necessary to keep the house in proper condition. We must compare types of stoves with one another hot air, steam, and hot water plants with one another, and various kinds of fuels, both as to cost and as to efficacy. The water question is one of real interest to both city and country dweller, although the chances are that the country dweller knows less about his source of supply than the city dweller can know if he chooses to investigate. The city dweller should know whence and by what means the water flows from his faucet. If for no other reason than that he may do his part in seeing that the money spent by the city or town brings adequate return to the taxpayer. For the rural homemaker, of course, the problem usually becomes an individual one. Illustration, photograph by Brown Bros. A dangerous well. The rural homemaker must make sure that his water supply is at a safe distance from contaminating impurities. Is the water supply adequate? Is the water free from harmful bacteria? Is the source a safe distance from contaminating impurities? Are we obtaining the water for household and farm purposes without more labor than is compatible with good management? Is not running water as important for the house as for the barn? How much water does an ordinary family need for all purposes in a day? How much time does it take to pump and carry this quantity by hand or to draw it from a well? How much strength and nerve force are thus expended that might be saved for more important work? Does lack of time or strength cause the homekeeper to get along with less water in the house than is really needed? Is there any natural means at hand for pumping the water any brook that may be put to a work? Any gravity system that may be installed? If not, are there mechanical means available that would really pay for themselves in increased water, time, and comfort for all the family? Illustration, 
photograph by Brown Bros. Where water must be pumped and carried by hand much strength and nerve force are expended which might be kept for more important work from a consideration of water supply we pass naturally to questions of the disposal of waste. And here again is found a subject too often neglected both in town and in rural communities. In the city the problems are not individual ones in the main, but rather questions of the best management and use of the public utilities concerned. Does the average city householder know what becomes of the waste removed from his door by the convenient arrival of the ash man, the garbage man, the rubbish man? Does he know whether this waste is disposed of in the most sanitary way? Does he consider whether it is removed in such a way as to be inoffensive and without danger to the people through whose streets it is carried? Does he know anything of the cost to the city of waste disposal? Is it merely an expense, and a heavy one, for him in common with other taxpayers to bear? Or is the business made to pay for itself? If not, is it possible to make it pay? Does any community make the waste account balance itself at the end of the year? Illustration, photograph by Brown Bros. An objectionable garbage wagon. Disposal of waste is a subject too often neglected both in urban and in rural communities in the country. Once more we face the individual problem rather than that of the community. Here proper provision for the disposal of waste often necessitates more knowledge of the subject than is possessed by the homemaker, or sometimes it requires the installation of apparatus whose cost seems prohibitive. A careful consideration of these matters will possibly disclose the fact that a smaller expenditure may accomplish the desired purpose, or, if this is not true, it may be found that the end accomplished is worth the expenditure of what seemed a prohibitive sum, a water closet, for instance has not only a sanitary but a moral value. We must somehow educate people to understand and to believe that the basis of family health and fullness is proper living conditions, and that some system of sewage and garbage disposal is a necessary step toward proper living conditions. With the urban population these matters are removed from personal and immediate consideration, but every rural homemaker must face his own problems, with the knowledge that since his conditions are individual his solution must be equally his own. In the matters pertaining to decoration within the house as well as beautifying its surroundings, the country and the city dweller meet on equal terms. Their problems may differ in detail, but the principles to be studied are the same. Here our art courses must be made to contribute their share to the homemaker's training. We must strike the keynote of simplicity, both within and without, and must teach girls especially the value of carefully thought-out color schemes and decorating plans to be carried out by different people in the materials and workmanships weak to their purses. They must learn that expense is not necessarily a synonym for beauty, they must know the characteristics of fabrics and other decorative materials, and they must be trained to recognize the qualities for which expenditure of money and effort are worthwhile. In the designing of school buildings nowadays close attention is paid to beauty of architecture, symmetry of form, convenience of arrangement, and durable but artistic furnishings. All unwittingly the child receives an aesthetic training through his daily life in the midst of attractive surroundings. Many of our rural schools are doing excellent work in teaching children to beautify the school grounds. Some of them go farther and interest their pupils in attacking the problem of improving outside conditions at home. Every child whose mind is thus turned in the direction of attractive home grounds has unconsciously taken a step toward one branch of efficient homemaking. If it were possible to give pupils the foundation principles of landscape gardening, they might learn to see with a trained eye the problems they will otherwise attack blindly. Illustration, an example of the newer architecture. An artistic approach to a school has a daily effect on the mind of the child. Illustration, 
Photograph by Brown Bros. Rural School with Flower Bed. Many of the rural schools are doing excellent work in teaching children to beautify the school grounds with the house built and ready for its furniture. The selection of the latter becomes both part of the scheme of decoration and part also of the domestic plans for securing comfort and inspiring surroundings. The same principles of beauty and utility, restfulness, comfort, and suitability, are called into a requisition. The trained housewife will have an eye toward future dusting and will choose the less ornate articles. The same person, in her capacity as the mother of citizens, will see that chairs are comfortable to sit in that tables and desks are the right height for work, that bookcases and cabinets are sufficient in number and size to take care of the family treasures. She will use pictures sparingly and choose them to inspire, perhaps, most of all. The woman with the trained mind will know how to avoid a superfluity of furniture in her rooms. She will be educated to the beauty of well-planned spaces and will not feel obliged to fill every nook and corner with chairs or tables or sofas or other pieces of furniture which nearly fill the space. Illustration, Photograph by Brown Bros. An Artistic Living Room. The Principles of Beauty and Utility, Restfulness, Comfort, and Suitability must all be considered in the furnishing of a home before furnishing is considered complete. The housekeeper must take into account the matter of operating apparatus. Perhaps a large part of this important department of house equipment has been built into the house. The water system, the sewer connection or its substitute, and the lighting apparatus are already installed, so that the turn of a switch or a faucet, the pull of a chain, sets one or all to a work for us. We are now to consider whether we shall buy a vacuum cleaner or a broom and dustpan, a washing machine and electric flat iron or the services of a washerwoman, or shall telephone the laundry to call for the wash. Shall we invest in a home steam canning outfit at $10, or make up a list for the retailer of the products of the canning factory? Shall we have a sewing machine, or plan to buy our clothing from the store? Once upon a time practically the only labor-saving device possible to the housekeeping woman was another woman. Today many devices are offered to take her place. Our homemaker must know about them, and must compare their value with the older piece of operating machinery. The domestic servant, she must know what it costs to keep a servant, in money, in responsibility, and in all the various ways which cannot be reduced to figures. Already the pros and cons of the servant question have caused much and long-continued agitation. The woman of the future should be taught to approach the matter with a scientific summing up of the facts and with a readiness to lift domestic service to a standardized vocation or to abandon it altogether in favor of the labor-saving devices and the public utilities. Certain of our home efficiency experts assure us that all industries in the home are doomed. If this is true, the domestic servant must of necessity cease to exist. Most persons, however, cannot yet see how public utilities will be able to do all of our work. We may send the washing out, but we cannot send out the beds to be made, the eggs to be boiled, or the pictures, chairs, and window sills to be dusted. The table must be set at home, and the dishes washed there, until we approach the day of communal eating places, which, as we all know, will be difficult to utilize for infants and the aged, for invalids and for the vast army of those who are averse to faring forth three times daily in search of food, for a long time yet the domestic servant, or her substitute, will be with us, doing the work that even so great a power as public utilities cannot remove from the home. Illustration, photograph by Brown Bros. 
Contrast the bad taste displayed in the furnishing of this hopelessly inartistic room with the simplicity shown in that on page 43 at present there is much to indicate that the servant's substitute, in the form of various labor-saving devices, will eventually fill the place of the already vanishing domestic worker. Whether this proves to be the case will rest largely with these girls whom we are educating today. The pendulum is swinging rather wildly now but by their day of deciding things it may have settled down to a steady motion so that their push will send it definitely in one direction or the other. There is no inherent reason why making cake should be a less honorable occupation than making underwear or shoes, why a well-kept kitchen should be a less desirable workroom than a crowded, noisy factory, but under existing conditions the comparison from the point of view of the worker is largely in favor of the factory. Among the facts to be faced by the homemaker who wishes to intercept the flight of the housemaid and the cook are these, 1. Hours for the domestic worker must be definite, as they are in shop or factory work. 2. The working day must be shortened. 3. Time outside of working hours must be absolutely the worker's own. 4. The worker must either live outside the home in which she works, or must have privacy, convenience, comfort, and the opportunity to receive her friends as she would at home. In short, the houseworker must have definite work, definite hours, and outside these must be free to live her own life, in her own way, and among her own friends, as the factory girl lives hers when her day's work is done. That women are already awaking to these responsibilities is shown by the increasing number who choose the labor-saving devices in place of the flesh and blood machine. Many of these women will tell you that they make this choice to avoid the personal responsibility involved in having a resident worker in the house. There is comfort in not having to consider whether or not the vacuum cleaner likes to live in the country, or the bread mixer has a backache, or the electric flat iron desires an afternoon off to visit its aunt. It is the same satisfaction we feel in urging the automobile to greater speed regardless of the melting heat, the pouring rain or the number of miles it has already traveled today. Perhaps the future will see machines for household work so improved and multiplied that we can escape altogether this perplexing personal problem of the woman who works for us. Whether or not we escape this problem when we patronize the laundry, the bake shop, the underwear factory, is a matter for further thought. To many it seems a simpler matter to face the problem of one cook, one laundress, than to investigate conditions in factory, bakery, and laundry, to agitate, to use our influence, to urge legislation, to follow up inspectors and their reports, to boycott the bakery, to be driven into the establishment of a cooperative laundry whether we will or number in order to fulfill our obligations to the women who work for us in these various places. True, our duty to a womankind requires that we do all these things to a certain extent so long as the public utilities exist but with the multiplication of utilities to a number sufficient to do a large portion of our work, it would seem that women would be left little time for anything else than their supervision and regulation. Problems relating to the establishing of a home would once have been considered far from the province of the teacher in the public school. Formerly we taught our children a little of everything except how to live. Now we are realizing that the teacher should be a constructive social force. Living is a more complicated thing than it once was and the school must do its share in fitting the children for their task. All these matters we have been considering the selection of a home site, building, decorating, furnishing, sanitation, and all the rest represent constructive social work the teacher may do, which, if she passes it by, may not be done at all. College courses should prepare the teacher for such work, 
but even the girl who is not college trained will find, if she seeks it, help sufficient for her training, and the work awaits her on every hand. Chapter I.D. Running the domestic machinery with a home established. The problems confronting the homemaker become those of administration. The place for making citizens is built and ready. The making of citizens must begin. One of the fundamental requisites for the efficient operation of the home plant is that the homemaker shall have a firm grasp upon the financial part of the business. To estimate the number of homes wrecked every year by lack of this economic knowledge is of course impossible, but you can call up without effort many cases in which this lack was at least a contributing element to the wreck. Keeping expenditures within the income is only the ABC of the financial knowledge required. Although, like other ABCs it is essential to the acquirement of deeper knowledge. It is not enough that the housekeeper merely succeeds in keeping out of debt. She must know what to expect in return for the money that she spends, and she must know whether or not she gets it. She must have definitely in mind the results she expects, and she must know why she spends for certain objects rather than for others. In the days of famine and fear, the individual was fortunate who had food, shelter, and a skin to wrap about his shivering shoulders. In these days it is not enough to have merely these things. Certain standards of civilized life must be met, and we shall find that it requires judgment and skill to apportion our funds properly. The common needs of civilized mankind are usually roughly classified as follows, food, shelter, clothing, operating expenses, including service, heat, light, water, repairs, refurnishing, and the general upkeep of the plant, advancement, including education, recreation, travel, charity, church doctor, den, 